Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. As you're aware, we have been carrying through the last few weeks on a series on walking with God. And uh, this morning, I'd really like to pick up the uh, the topic of walking in integrity. In a recent interview in the New York Times, a CEO of a large investment and banking firm shared with the New York Times his method for hiring candidates. And what he would do, he would invite the candidate to a restaurant for breakfast. But what he'd do is he'd go go to the restaurant a little bit early and he'd tell the restaurant to muck up the order. Because what he was wanting to do is he wanted to see how these candidates responded during those particular instances. In his own words, the CEO said, I want to look inside their heart. And as we spend some time this morning talking about integrity, I believe that that's what God wants to do. He wants to look inside our heart. And so we should do that also. There are many leaders who've got credentials in experience and in education but they're lacking in the area of integrity. And so today we're going to continue on with the series on walking in with God, and the title is Walking in Integrity. And I realize now that, that it's bigger than just the word integrity. It's a word that you and I have heard no doubt countless times. You've heard it at funerals, you've heard it Colleagues' farewells, and and for those that are involved in the business world or the commercial world, no doubt you've seen it on countless CVs under the heading of personal attributes, integrity. But you see, I think God is wanting us to, to move to a higher standard, one that the world isn't used to. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at that this morning. The word integrity comes from the Latin adjective integer. Now, those that remember their maths throughout the years will know that integer is a whole number, a complete number. It's where we get our word integration from. Integrity is the inner sense of wholeness. And if we explore that further and we look in the Hebrew, we can see that they use words such as tamim and tom and tam. And these Hebrew words also point to completeness and to wholeness. And so our somewhat normalized understanding of the word integrity has the ability to become a watered-down version of what I think God is wanting us to understand. Because it's more than just telling the truth. And if we start to think that integrity is born out of or is a characteristic of wholeness, then it makes sense that we need to firstly understand what does completeness and wholeness mean? mean when we understand the heart of God. See, here's the problem with the word integrity. In that watered-down understanding that I spoke about, you only need to be sincere and transparent to be considered to have integrity. But you can be sincerely wrong, and you can be motivated by something completely other than wholeness. So what I'd like to do in the short time that we've got together this morning is to firstly look at the heart of God, because I can't think of anything better to do than that. And then, in the short time thereafter, we'll just spend a few moments thinking about what our response to that should be. And I want to start by looking at Exodus chapter 2 and 3, 
It's where the children of God were groaning. It says the children of God were groaning and they were crying out. And God hears their cry and through Moses and a burning bush, he seeks to set the people of Israel free. So Moses meets with God at Mount Sinai and God says to Moses, go down to Egypt and tell, the, tell Pharaoh, let my people go and tell the people to follow you. And then if we look in Exodus chapter three, verses 13, here's, here's what happens. Moses says to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you were to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. You see, the Israelites have been in bondage for something like 430 years. They've been surrounded by pagan Egypt. They've adapted themselves, no doubt, to the Egyptian culture. And so Moses is saying, after 430 years, God, they've, they've forgotten who you are. And when I tell them that you're the father of Abraham and of Isaac and of Israel, they're going to say, but what's, what's your name? What's, what's this God's name? Is it, is it Ra? Is it the Egyptian God of the sun? Or is it Isis, the Egyptian God of the Nile and of fertility? And I can't say a burning bush has sent me to them. So wh- who am I going to tell them you are? And God says to Moses, tell them I am that I am. One of the most profound statements, I believe, of the character of God. God is I am. He is always himself. He is always complete. He is never one thing and then another. He's unchangeable. God is altogether I am. I heard a great analogy. If you were to draw a perfect circle and every point on that circle was equidistant from the center, that would be God. There's absolutely nothing that we could do to make God more complete, more circular. And there's nothing in that circle that is surplus to requirements that if you were to take it away, it would make it more perfect. God is, I am. He is complete. He is holy. And it's not a segmented circle. Never one thing and then another, never partial, not sometimes part of himself and other times the rest of himself, he is omnipresent. He is all of God everywhere at the same time. And what I find so miraculous is that this is the same God that we can approach and know what we're going to get and know that we are loved. I find that miraculous. But that's only part of the story, isn't it? It's when we start to read through and we get to Leviticus that I start to feel a little bit queasy, a little bit uneasy. Because in Leviticus 19, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And perhaps we might start thinking, Hang on a minute, God, that's a little bit unfair, isn't it? We're down here in Hamilton, New Zealand. You're God of the universe. You're perfect. You're the integer, you're complete, you're whole. And you're saying, you need to live to the same standard as me, as God. I think that's a little bit unfair, God. You know, in 2014, there was a survey completed by MTV. And they surveyed respondents to the seven deadly 
sins, the medieval list of motivational sins, you know, the ones that's envy and gluttony and greed and lust, pride, laziness and anger or wrath. And the results came back from the respondents to the survey and they said, look, basically these are all good. No real issue with any of these sins, they're all fine. But one of the questions that was also asked struck me and the question was this, it, was, it, it said, what would you define as sin? And I quote, no sin is as evil as the killjoy attitude of those that think someone's behavior is an offense to some holy God. So here we are, God, we're sitting here in Hamilton. There's a decline in morality. There is a different understanding of integrity. And there's a lack of understanding of living in holiness. And you, God, are saying, make yourselves holy because I am holy. Is it a command or is it a promise? And God says, yes, it's a command and it's a promise. He says, you shall be holy because I am holy. It's not because of anything that you can do, but everything that I can do within you. There's nothing that can point us to holiness but our God displayed in the life of Jesus Christ and through the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Three in one, complete and holy. So what's our response to this command and promise? What do we do with this? How do we go about living this life of integrity, of, of wholeness? The biblical virtue of integrity points to consistency between what is present within and evident externally. The words we use, the way we act, consistency in actions, consistency in attitudes. And I love Matthew 23 because Jesus starts to talk a little bit about this. Jesus is speaking to the multitudes and his disciples, and by the way, he's not backwards and coming forward about his opinion of the Pharisees and the scribes. In verse 25, he says this, let me read this to you. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. A great start, isn't it? For you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, and that the outside of them might be clean also. And Tim Keller, he says this. He says, if we give priority to the outer life, our inner life will be a dark, scary room. We will not know what to do with solitude. We'll be deeply uncomfortable with self-examination. And we will have an increasingly short attention span for any kind of reflection. Even more seriously, our lives will lack integrity. Outwardly, we will need to project confidence, spiritual and emotional health and wholeness, while inwardly, we may be filled with self-doubts, anxiety, self-pity and old grudges, yet we won't know how to go into the inner rooms of the heart and see clearly what is there and deal with it. In short, without putting a priority on the inner life, we turn ourselves into hypocrites. Pretty strong. Pretty challenging. Let's look at the first chapter of Job. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1, because it's a powerful example of the integrity that we should all long for. It says this, it says there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. I love that. It says the man was blameless and upright, one who feared God 
and turned away from evil. And after those facts of his name and his place of origin, the first significant thing that the writer tells us is about Job's character. He's a man of complete integrity. It doesn't mean that he was perfectly sinless. It means that he wasn't hypocritical. For those that have read Job and that will continue to read Job, you'll see all through that piece of scripture that Job constantly confesses his sin before God and therefore is blameless in the sight of God. It also notes that he was a man who feared God. And when we read that word fear in this particular context, it means that it's a person who conducts his or her life in reverent awe and acknowledgement of God. He had a deep reverence for the God of the universe. <clears throat> Excuse me. And finally, he is a, he's described as a man who turns away from sin. And so when we read this example in Job and we read other scriptures such as Samuel and Isaiah, we can see some sort of a pattern starting to develop. And the pattern is this. It's reverence, it's confession, and it's integration. And I'd like to deal with those first two first. Reverence and confession, because I think they are inextricably linked in many ways. I think there's little point in standing in reverent awe before the creator of the universe without responding in confession. And similarly, I think there's little point in confession without understanding the God of the universe and standing before him in, in reverent awe. And ironically, last time I spoke to you, I shared one of my favorite portions of scripture from Isaiah. It's where the prophet Isaiah had a vision of the glorious and awesome creator of the universe and he was overwhelmed by the holiness of God. Let me read this scripture to you. Isaiah chapter six, verses one to seven, it says this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord and he was seated on a throne and he was high and exalted and the train of his robe filled the temple and above him were seraphs each with six wings, and with two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my Eyes have seen the King, the Lord God Almighty. And then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth. And he said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now, Isaiah is expressing here what modern psychologists call personal disintegration. And to disintegrate means exactly that, to disintegrate. To integrate something is when we put pieces together, make it whole. And as we have already discussed, the word integrity suggests a person whose life is whole or wholesome. Here, Isaiah is saying, I am undone. I am torn apart because I've seen the holiness of God and Isaiah is disintegrated. And Peter realizes the power of Jesus. He falls to his knees and he says, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And Peter is disintegrated. And the same John that we read that sits next to Jesus in Revelation, it says he falls at his feet as though, as though dead. And John is disintegrated. And such is the reaction 
when we encounter the holiness of God. And in many ways, this is the first step in pursuing a life of integrity. It has to come with the realization that we stand before a wonderful, holy God. And that we can only be holy because he himself is holy. And then, of course, we must cry out in confession and we must bathe in the realization that we are loved by a holy God and we must say, God, create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit and then rest in the promise that we have a God who is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You know, when Don started this series on walking with God a few weeks ago, he quoted from Proverbs 4 in verse 18. It says, but the path of the righteous is like the shining sun. And he emphasized the word path. And he said to note that this is not some static position. Righteousness demands movement along a continuum. So let's not get confused here. Integrity doesn't mean sinless. It means walking a path with intentionality. And it will likely mean, as it has for me, retracing those steps, or in fact actually stepping back onto the path. So revelation and confession. Let's have a look at an integration. It says that Job turned away from sin, and herein lies the great battle, doesn't it? Yes, we understand that our God is a holy God, and he's enabled us to live holy lives. Be holy because I am holy. But now what? Biblical scholar N.T. Wright, he says, Christians have a big gap in their vision of what being a Christian is all about. It's though they were standing on one side of a deep, wide river looking across to the further bank. On this bank, you declare your faith. On the opposite bank is the ultimate result, final salvation itself. But what are people supposed to do in the meantime? Simply stand here and wait? Is there no bridge between the two? He then goes on to say that uh, the bridge between the two banks is the construction of character, but I'd like to expand on that a little bit and suggest that we need to build a bridge by walking in godly integrity, in holiness, through the decisions we make and in response to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to ask a friend of mine and yours, uh, Daniel, to come and, and just give me a, a hand as we explore this a little bit further. like Michael Parkinson here sitting doing an interview. Daniel, uh, I, I won't do a big long interview because you uh, are well known to our family here, but I do want to thank you for being willing to come and share a story with us um, today. Daniel and I sat and had a coffee and he shared with me a story from a time in his commercial life and I'd love you to briefly share that story with us, leaving out names. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I won't say names. Um, and I'll try and be brief. <laughs> um, so the story really began, I was working in a factory and um, I had, in my company, I had just moved into another role. There had been a project set up. My company wanted to get into a very lucrative market. There was a big opportunity. We'd identified that our customer was also wanting to expand in that market. And so there was an opportunity for us to supply a customer that we already had. So my role, uh, my new role, was to get this factory up to speed, get it up to spec, and um, meet the opportunity that was there. 
as part of a, I became part of a bigger team that had been running for some time. I was a bit of a new member to this team. And um, so we, we were all working very hard to analyse and work out what we had to do to meet this customer expectation. Um, I knew that I had a factory audit coming pretty early on in the piece, within a month of actually taking up the role, and so that was a bit nerve-wracking. Um, but I set about trying to get that, as best as I can, get that, um, get that happening well. We knew that the auditor was coming from Europe, the company was from Europe, and I knew the auditor from previous roles, and he was a tough guy, a real straight-up kind of fella, um, had a real quick temper on him, he had two engineering degrees and a science degree, so he was as clever as they come. And uh, he didn't entertain fools, didn't suffer fools at all. You had to answer the questions really accurately, really really promptly. Yes be a yes and your no be a no. And so we knew he was coming. Two days before the audit, um, I was running a mock audit with my staff and we were going through the factory and I came across a piece of equipment that I hadn't seen before and I opened it up and my heart sank. I had found an absolute major problem. And I couldn't believe it. We had two days. I don't know if I was angry or... I, I don't know. I just had a whole rush of emotions all at once. How can I fix this problem in two days? In all fairness, the staff of that factory had um, operated and managed the problem very well for a long time. I asked them, how long have you had this problem for? They said, oh, 10 years. <laughs> no. <laughs> and so I went about the next two days like a whirlwind, um, trying to put fixes in place. But of course, two days wasn't enough time. We had our auditor arrive from Europe. We got straight into the audit. Uh, I could see very clearly it was going badly. There were already four pages of notes we come to the area where the piece of equipment was and I couldn't believe it. It was like a horror movie, like an Alfred Hitchcock thriller. <laughs> the sort of music, you know, you can imagine going in my head a bit like that. <laughs> and um, he, he was just walking straight towards it. He opened up that very piece of equipment. He'd been coming to this plant and auditing it for a long time, never been there before. Opened it up. And it looked face right and you know face to face of the problem. I didn't know what language he was writing down the things on the paper in, but it was big letters with such force that it probably got inscribed into the clipboard. <laughs> the audit finished. I got into the audit room at the end of the audit. We have a meeting. The other people from my company were there. And they asked me, you know, very inquisitively, hope with expectancy, how'd it go, how'd it go? And I was just like, oh, bad. <laughs> just after that, the auditor came in and he got into the front of the, um, to the meeting room. And I don't, the way I remember it is he just looked straight to me, he didn't even open his notes. And he said to me, how long have you known? <laughs> and... I thought, you know, do I say, what? What are you talking about? I thought, no, not with this guy. You know, just be straight up. I know what he's talking about. So I had a little bit of relief, actually. I thought, it's good that I can say two days. <laughs> so I said, two days, sir. 
But I knew that was a short-term relief because the next question, of course, was how long has your company known? I felt every eye in that room, all my peers, everyone from my company looking at me, hoping for a miracle that I'd save the day. Um, All I could think of was that my company's value, one of the strong values that they'd put into us and trained us and said this is important to our company was integrity. And that was a value that really uh, resonated with me. And I knew it resonated with Jesus. (laughs) So... In that split second of internal warfare, I decided that the best thing to do was tell him honestly what what the deal was. And so I said, 10 years. And immediately I tried to say, but we've put some amazing stuff into place, you know, in the last few days. But his face just went from one shade of pink all the way through to beetroot. (laughs) He threw the papers on the floor and stormed out. Uh, One of my colleagues across the room swore at me. And uh, I kind of mustered up a bit of courage. I don't know where that came from. Uh, Probably justification, maybe leadership if I was hopeful. And he said, uh, I said, it'll be okay. You know, we're a company of integrity. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, as soon as I'd finished saying that, in my remembrance of the story, the auditor walked in back in and he basically said, you're not getting anything all the products that you were making, all, the, all our history, it's finished. I'm going back to Europe and I'm going to recommend to our company that you're finished, this company's finished being a supplier to us. I don't really remember much how I got from that room to home. <laughs> I got home, Anna had just had a baby, um, she was three, he was three weeks old and I was getting a lot of phone calls from the CEO, the general manager and just about everybody under the sun. And I was receiving those phone calls and walking out of the house onto the street so that Anna didn't have to feel the stress of what was going on. And people were saying to me, you're an idiot. You know, integrity doesn't mean being honest in front of a customer. Um, And, you know, this is not what integrity looks like. And in that time I felt calm. I knew I'd done the right thing for me. Integrity was important for me and I'd... I felt like I'd rather live with my integrity than with my job if that was the choice. And I knew I'd done the right thing, you know, as far as my Christian beliefs were going. I knew I'd done the right thing by Jesus. And I I felt a real peace. I couldn't say that to the people on the other end of the phone. I just said, yes, I hear you. I'll get what's coming to me in a month's time when the auditor comes back. So a month went past and I just fervently went about doing my job, had a lot of sleepless nights, as you'd imagine. And finally the audit day was there and the auditor had come back and he got to the front of the room. I was down the back. I felt very lonely. Um, There was a few people at my table, but I don't think they spoke to me. (laughs) And uh, he got up the front and he said that he'd gone, spoken to his people in Europe and they had gone, uh, told him to go and investigate all the other... Um, companies that were supplying to them to look to give our products in which place those other companies, our competitors, would be able to manufacture them. But every one of those customers, uh, sorry, those suppliers to our customer, when our customer, the auditor, had audited them, he found the same problem in their plant. And he said the difference is they had the same problem, but you were the only company that was honest. Everyone else lied to my face. Uh, 
So you're going to keep your orders. We're going to align with you for this 100% increase into this market, and we think you'll probably get some more. There were some conditions to meet, but it was a relief. I think it was just a relief. No one said anything. No one said anything to me. Um, I think everyone was just relieved and we got on with our job and a few years later I eventually left the company and we had a, that, that guy, that auditor and I had become good friends in those few years actually and he invited me to work for him in Europe when he heard I was leaving the company um, you guys know where I was heading towards um, most of you know me so I said no <laughs> and um, at my leaving shout they had a panel of people asking questions and one of the questions was, why did you have integrity? And I don't think I really answered it well, but I said something like, you know, I'd rather have integrity than my job. I think, um, Daniel, uh, you know, to really explore the seriousness of that decision, it, it's important for these people to understand that um, had they pulled that product, the plant would have been closed you would have lost your job and your colleagues and your staff would have lost their job also. So there must have been a time where you thought, oh, have I actually done the right thing? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I felt like crawling into a hole at times. I felt like I'd let everyone down, um, especially the staff in that factory. Um, but not only them, the whole company. I mean, this was, this was a big deal. It was a big project and it was a big customer. But I guess in all that, I, did, I really did feel, you know, a peace that I could only say that is because I have a relationship with God that helped me to get through it. And honestly, through that, I, I couldn't understand how people in the same kind of position as I was in could do it without God. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, definitely. Great place to end. Give Daniel a hand. Thank you. You know, I read somewhere that integrity is not for the faint-hearted. It's panther-like in its grip on honesty. It's wolf-like in its tireless pursuit of truth. It's lion-like in its refusal to give way. It's often disparaged by those who are not themselves honest or truthful because for all the demands it makes, integrity is rather unspectacular. It's one of those quiet virtues that can turn the world upside down. And I love what Paul says to Timothy in, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He says, Timothy, cultivate these things. Immerse yourself in them. The people will all see you mature right before their eyes. And keep a firm grasp on both your character and your teaching. And don't be diverted. Just keep at it. Both you and those who hear you will experience salvation. See, Paul's saying, what's your life and doctrine? Timothy, make sure the two line up. You see, godly integrity is a moment-by-moment -moment pursuit. It's the small decisions as well as the large. It's the decisions that we make when no one's looking. It's telling the truth even when it hurts. It's keeping a promise when you'd rather not. It's confrontation of problems when it's easier to walk away. It's choosing forgiveness. It's all of these things. It's consistency in public and in private, and it's unsegmented. There's no different segments in different parts of our lives. There's not a segment for 
when you're a mum and dad. There's not a segment when you're a connect group leader. There's not a, a segment when you're in the boardroom. There's not a segment when you're sitting watching telly. There's not a segment when you're sitting alone. It's unsegmented. It's the ongoing pursuit of wholeness in every aspect of our lives. And it's integrity. And you will fail. And I will fail and I have failed. But I think God is calling us to step onto the path of righteousness, walking in a life of integrity. One that is different to the standard that the world holds but one that aligns itself to the heart of God, the wholeness of God. And so I believe that's our challenge uh, this morning. Musicians, I was wondering if you could come up and... I wanna close with some scripture. As I was preparing this and I wanted to finish with this piece of scripture, I realized that actually this is a challenge for us. It's a challenge for me and, and it may be a challenge for you And I'm going to ask that we all stand and I'm going to read this to you. What I'd like you to do is to take this scripture as potentially a challenge for the way that you walk with God, the way that you are different in this world. And then we're going to sing together. We're going to sing Build My Life in response to that. Let me read this to you in 1 Peter 1, verses 13 and 16. It says, So prepare your minds for action. And exercise self-control and put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. But now you must be holy in everything you do. Just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, You must be holy because I am holy. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.